Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you are called to one hope when you are called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. What does he ascended mean, except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach the unity in the faith, in the knowledge of the Son of God and become, a, and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants, tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is, Christ. From him the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this day, the chance to get together and uh, think through this important topic. Um, We pray for Rhett right now as he opens up your word. Uh, We pray that uh, you would use him to speak your word to us. Uh, Make us attentive. Help us to hear not only practical details today, but also what your word has to say to us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Look, what I want to start with really is, I think, six key convictions, if you like, that shape my life, and I hope they actually shape your life. Um, I'll focus largely on the last one particularly, but just uh, the first one is heaven and hell. The reality of a, a real heaven and hell, uh, where hell is eternal, such that Jesus will say, what good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? That is, it's possible to waste your life. Um, second thing is uh, the cross that is that Jesus died at, uh, at 33 at, at one level humanly unsuccessful what 120 or so followers disciples who uh, he would say would do greater works than him um, in fact in our own Bible studies we're in Acts 2 we saw Peter jump up and give a sermon to 3,000 but of course so one of Peter looks more successful but of course Jesus' success, or what, what he did was so much incredibly more than that, wasn't it? Ultimately we see that the Gospels aren't actually um, biographies of, the, of Jesus' life. They're actually passion narratives with a bit of an introduction. Because at the heart, God sends his own son, his only son. Because there's no other way in which you can redeem an enslaved humanity to enable the, the, broke, the restoration of a broken relationship between us and our Creator. So that is, that is why Jesus goes to the cross, drinks the cup of God's wrath to enable this atonement. The cross is absolutely central in, in all the cosmos um, for, for the restoration. So that's the second thing. So it's heaven and hell, the reality. There's the cross. The third is the vision of God. That is where it's all going. The classic Ephesians 1 verse 10, that all things will be summed up in the end under Christ Jesus. Um, we see, say, Ephesians 3, that as the, the grace of God goes out, 
uh, and more and more people are entering into this salvation, that in the heavenlies, the, the angels and the hosts marvel at the manifold wisdom of God. That's what's going on. Or take it, Revelation 20, 21, that great vision of where it's all going. The, the, the heavenly city, the new Jerusalem, the voice that now says, you know, now is the dwelling of God with man. So it is the vision of God. Um, uh, the fourth is the brevity of life. Life's short, and therefore it brings with it a great urgency. So you, before you know it, our bodies will be in the grave and we'll be in glory, and all our troubles right now actually really are just momentary. Okay? What all that brings us to, I take it, you put those presuppositions together, those realities, deep convictions we hold, it means we have to be driven by love. And it's quite common in our church, we kind of use, have used for years, a, a lifeboat illustration, which pictures essentially that church is a lifeboat, we're, where we're at this sea of humanity that's largely drowning, that's all drowning, unless we can pluck them out of the water and get them in this lifeboat. Their only hope is they get in this lifeboat called Jesus, faith in Jesus, and into this, into this thing called church to, to kind of look after them. Now, as, as the years have gone on, we've had to add it a bit more complex. It's not just as simple as getting them into a lifeboat. We actually say, no, it's actually we have to get them from in the lifeboat, we have to get this lifeboat to safe haven. And there's all sorts of other things going on, isn't there? There's poison water in the lifeboat, and people attempted to drink it. There's sharks circling the boat, the lifeboat, and there's other people in the boat trying to push people out of the boat. All these sorts of things are actually happening um, in this lifeboat. And I, I, I take it that these are the kind of realities that, that shape us, these core convictions that, that drive us um, and um, that are before us. Um, maybe they ought to drive us these convictions more so we could repent. But at the heart, I think one of the, the realities we face is the magnitude of the task. Um, if you just look at what's before you, those already, if you like, in the lifeboat in your church or your own family and friends and the, 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 the brevity of life, the, the cross, the vision, then you just get busy. And that itself becomes overwhelming but our problem is the magnitude is so much larger than that. What's actually happened, I take it, is it's like it's Phuket Beach, 2000 and whatever it was with that tsunami, where literally there are thousands upon thousands who have died or are dying and many are facing imminent disease. And, and if you like, we are kind of being parachuted in and are faced with the task of how do we save people? And so, um, what would you do? What would your strategy be if you were parachuted in back that day, that day, Phuket Beach? What would you do? You'd build an effective team. You'd build an. I've <laughs> <laughs> heard that title somewhere. Before. Yeah, you'd build a team. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very good. So straight up there, we need a team. What was that? The task is too big for you. Yeah. Yeah. Because what's got to be done? What are some of the things that have got to be done? 
there's an assessment of what the problem is, so somehow you've got to find out what's needed, you know, ambulance or medical or rescue or... There's all sorts of huge assessment, isn't there? A huge strategic assessment or, or diagnostic of what's going on here, what's going to be needed, yeah. <coughs> what about all the people? What are you going to do with this vast need before you? And there's just you at the moment. What, what? It's prioritise. Prioritise. Yeah, life's in the ER and that's the thing they train more than anyone else is. You need to solve the most important problem first. Yeah, you're going to triage, aren't you? Yep. You know? So, yeah. You've got to get the lipstick out and do whatever you know. Now your debt, you... Yeah. And that's, that's, that's kind of tough love, isn't it? Because... That's really hard because, you know, if it's just you with this one, you might save them. But you have to actually say, no, on the risk assessment, you're gone. Yeah. So that's exactly right. You have to make hard decisions. Um, you have to do an assessment. Who's going to help? Um, uh, how, what else would you do? You identify your resources, yeah. What kind of resources? You might have some people resources, so people who are able-bodied enough after the incident, but then they might not have the knowledge. So you may actually need to invest some time in teaching them how to triage if they're going to kind of kind of multiply what you're going to attempt to do. Yeah, that's right. You, you, you've, you've got, you might have some capable medical staff actually around who've got some knowledge, you've got some other who's got skills but got huge knowledge deficiencies. Right? So you're actually right, you've, got to assess, you've even got to assess the people who's where. What other resource issues have you got? In terms of people who've got leadership resources to figure out, so that people have leadership capabilities already. Yeah. It can be put into other roles. You've got all sorts of skills, things there, you've got leadership uh, questions you've got. Yep. But your physical resources, so what's available in terms of boats or whatever that you can like physical. Yep. And that <coughs> being local and what's available in America and Australia, so that yeah, local resource, immediate resources as well as so That's right, you've got international thing and then accessing the other resources. Yeah, you got local, that's right. As soon as you start drawing a map like that, you've got some communication type questions all over the place, whether that's international communications or you know, getting other people in from outside. Yep. Or even just working communications out in that matrix there. Yeah, even, that's right, even in <laughs> in here. That's right. I, I, I was trying to work out where I joined the lines, but you can see all of a sudden you're going, whoa. Um, you, you start drawing lines <laughs> all over the place. And um, um, th that's exactly right. You you're going to have to train others. You're going to have to assess others. You're going to have to systematise. You're going to have to have a strategy. Right? Um, that, that, that is exactly right. Um, and um, well, my question then is, is there any evidence that in the New Testament that the apostles say thought like this? That um, that they had a strategy, that they were um, that their leadership had a tough love element to it. That it was an intentional kind of love, kind of thing. That they sought to literally mobilise, as you've said, teams 
to try and just all that kind of stuff. Is there is there any evidence of that? I've got nods. Yes. Yeah. Yes. All right. So a few places, but let, look, let's just we'll go quickly. I'll, I'll we'll flip. We'll come back to Ephesians before we're going. But first, I'll just take it to one Corinthians fifteen fifty eight. All right. So we're told, uh, 1 Corinthians 15.58, we're told Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm, let nothing move you, always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labour in the Lord is not in vain. Now the bigger context there, of course, is that um, in the biblical narrative, most of what turns out to be mist and vapour and meaningless. And Ecclesiastes, right? It just ends in nothing. Death swamps it all. But then, of course, in the context of Corinthians, Paul's arguing the resurrection's changed that. Jesus has now done something, something profound, radically changed the entire structure of the universe where now there's something that's now not in vain, that those people who trust in Jesus can be saved. And there, there now is this work in the Lord that... that and he's writing to the, the Corinthians, the, the, the Christians, the saints, dear brothers and sisters. He says, stand firm, let nothing move you, always give yourselves fully or abound in, maximise your work in the Lord, because this work is not in vain. And our question then is, what is this work in the Lord? Well, the context, uh, particularly in chapter 16, shows us what he means by that. Look at verse, uh, verse 9. Um, uh, okay, pick up verse 8. But, if, but I will stay on at, at Ephesus until Pentecost because a great door for effective work has opened to me and there are many who oppose me. Paul's talking about his particular gospeling work. Verse 10 he goes on. And when Timothy comes, see, that, see to it that he has nothing to fear while he is with you. For he is carrying on the work of the Lord just as I am. So Timothy and Paul together are caught up in this particular work. Verse 15 and 16. You know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Archaea and they had devoted themselves to the service of the Lord's people. I urge you, brothers and sisters, to submit to such people and to everyone who joins in the work and labours at it. That is, the context here is a particular work uh, from, that is separate from the general work of ministry, the akonos of serving that goes on all the time, that God's people doing in all sorts of ways, in all the little bits of serving one another, to this particular work which is caught up in uh, evangelism and the service of the saints. Right? Um, it is essentially caught up with the building of the church, the mission of the church, building out, if you like, as more numbers come in and building up as the saints are matured. Um, that, of course, is the same pitch that it really is presented in uh, Ephesians uh, 4. But, um, but sorry, just before I go through, you see the, what's Paul pointing one 15? He, he's wanting all God's people to be caught up in this work to see its, its, its special nature and to give themselves to it. Ephesians 4, as we've just read, um, 
uh, well, what's going on there? Well, uh, the context is, uh, verse 1, for the beginning, what is the calling that the, the saints are called to? Uh, they're called to live a life of unity, of being one, of bearing one another. We are bearing with one another. Verse 2. But what we see is that they are caught up, what we see that these, these uh, people, um, office bearers, where are they? Verse 11. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastor teachers uh, to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. That is um, what we see. Uh, Paul says these particular officers are given the task of mobilising, mobilising the saints for this, these very tasks um, of, of, um, of the, equipping God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up, uh, so that they are all, uh, the body is matured. Um, each would reach maturity, as it says in verse 14, going, that is, they be, be, are discerning, no longer uh, washed, washed about, blown about. So that we have a picture here, if, if you like, of evangelists plucking people out of the water as God's people are equipped. We have others who are patching people up in the life raft, others stopping people drinking the poison water, others people stopping other people throwing people out of the life raft, and others pointing out the sharks. And it's the pastor teachers who are equipping the saints for all these works so that this body of Christ may be built. Getting people out of the water from drowning and then maturing so they, don't, they get essentially to safe haven and aren't lost along the way through all sorts of different means. Okay? Um, who, who equips them for this task? It's the, it's the pastor teachers, these leaders. All right? Now the, the question for my application is, do you believe this? Uh, is this your job description? Do you, if, you, if you concede with the first how many points, the heaven, the heaven and hell, the cross, the vision of God, the urgency of life, um, and, and, and love means we ought to do this, the, task, the magnitude of task is so large, are you convinced that you alone can't do it and, you're going to, and, and you need to do the same thing as the apostles. Seek to mobilise as many as you can to maximise those who get safe, safely to safe haven. Right? Um, it, 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 do you genuinely believe that? Now look, the data here from ministers and consultants in, across churches is that most churches have approximately 20% of the people who do 80% of the work. However, there is an exception in some churches. Okay? Some of these larger churches have learnt, have managed to have the same core 20%, but they are not, here's a quote, but they are not responsible for the bulk of the work. The burden and responsibility of the church's countless ministries and activities demand that a larger proportion of the congregation be involved. This work of ministry is done by another large segment of the attendees that would be considered by the leadership strong members. They make up approximately 40%. So to get that, most churches operate about 20% of people mobilised. There are some churches, mega church, miss I'm quoting from here, which actually they've been able to demonstrate, can get another 
caught up in this work. That is, so some of these churches, numbers of the churches, can get to 60% of their regular attendance, which includes kids and youth, actively engaged in ministry. They are mobilised to these very things that the New Testament urges the saints to be caught up in. Right? Stop the people drinking the water. Stop all those sorts of things. Um, and the question for us is, do you think like that? Now at EV, I, I, I do want to actually talk data because we want to wrestle this stuff. We're at 54% of people of average weekly t- in ministry. I think we're a little bit below some of these Ameri- some of the churches that we've got the data on because they'll have anybody in ministry in some of these churches. Christian, not, not, not. We, of course, only ask those who are in growth groups. We've chosen to do that. We want people in a growth group, in, in that um, weekly Bible study, and we ask those people out of that pool of people in the ministry. We've made certain decisions we'll talk about later. Why we do that, we get to 54%. Nevertheless, my point there is it's still lots of people mobilised for this task. Um, and the question is, do, do you think like this? And then, and if not, why not? Um, I think there's a number of reasons why um, leaders, church leaders, uh, don't think like this. Sometimes it's their own identity issues. Uh, they get their I- identity out of being the shepherd. They want to treat everybody individually on the beach. You know, that's what they like to do. And that's lovely, but if you're the church leader, you've got, to, you've got to lift your vision to see the magnitude of the problem, and as good as it is that you save that one, is that the best use of your time? Is that what you ought to be doing in your particular office position? All right? The other one, is, sometimes it's theological reasons, actually, a conviction that you are the shepherd, the shepherd and only the pastor-teacher alone must do all these things. Now, I don't into that, but I we could have some discussions about whether that's what has to happen and actually whether there's some problems in that thinking. Right? What I am presenting today is what we call com- compatibilism. Um, that is that two things hold together. God is sovereign and we are responsible. Both and. Just like in Christology, that is with the incarnation, we struggle here with the both and. The God, man, Jesus, right? We, 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 we usually always emphasise one at the expense of the other and we've always struggled to hold these together in tension. And here, in this particular struggle, we struggle to, once again with the God and human element. We tend to emphasise in our, my own culture, histo- uh, Christian culture, the God side. We emphasise be faithful and I think it's the better to, error to err on but it can lead to a kind of what we call in our world a kind of intermittent hyper-Calvinism. Just preach the gospel, just run the event, and if they don't come, oh well, that's not my fault. I'm not responsible. I want to argue it's compatibilism. God is sovereign, absolutely, and we are responsible to see the church built, to see them plucked out of the water, and to be saved. Um, and so I want to urge you to take responsibility, to ask what's not working. It's okay that things aren't working, right? We're all broken and frail. 
working with other people who are broken and frail. So things are always not going to be working. But it is our responsibility to ask the question, what's not working, what's the blockage, how do we fix it? What do we need to do around here differently? What do I need to do differently as a leader to help things move forward, to help those under my care in their leadership? We must mobilise the saints to save as many as we can as an act of love and of right service to the Lord Jesus. And we'll get into the details together of how we wrestle, how best to do these sorts of things. How about I pray? Father, we thank you so much for the privilege uh, of ministry. We thank you so much that you've caught us up in with you into the heavenlies, that we've been redeemed and saved, that we've been called to be one. And we do pray that we would increasingly uh, rest with how best to mobilise your people for this great task of rescuing many in the last days uh, so that um, Jesus is glorified and many will enter eternity into life. And we pray for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.